Welcome to Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Is liberal a dirty word? And if it is, should liberals be thinking about why? Thomas Frank is here to talk about his new book, Listen, Liberal. Michael Dukakis was the kind of ultimate case where he wouldn't even use the word. Uh, and they started calling it the L word because he, you know, he refused to let it cross his lips. What would make a new mother flee from her husband with their six-year-old child? Lydia Millet will be here to talk about her new book, Sweet Lamb of Heaven. Eventually this escalates into a kidnapping and it actually even escalates further than that into a situation where he invades the privacy of, of her mind. Plus, Greg Coles and Paul Sagal and I will talk about what we and other people are reading. The word liberal has been said with a sneer for decades, so much so that it's gotten hard to say the word liberal without sneering. And that's pretty much the way Thomas Frank means you to say the title of his new book, Listen, Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. He argues that Democrats have become a bunch of overeducated elites who've forgotten their commitment to the working class. Frank is here now to talk about his new book. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Sure thing. So the title, very pointed one, um, I'm thinking of it as sort of said this way, listen, liberal, um, or whatever <laughs> happened to the party of the people. Did you have that title sort of up front and know that's what you wanted to call the book? It should have had an exclamation point on it. I only, for some reason, neglected that until the very last minute. But, you know, the book is an exclamation point. It comes from a number of sources, but like, you know, C. Wright Mills wrote a book once called Listen, Yankee. And I was just thinking, I always think about this incident that happened in uh, Wichita some years ago uh, when uh, there, I was supposed to do an interview with a guy and he showed up at my hotel and, and rang the uh, the telephone and I picked it up and he said, uh, it was it was early in the morning, and he said, rise and shine, liberal. <laughs> <laughs> I always, always kind of liked that. It stuck in my mind. Was that back when you were writing What's the Matter with Kansas? Exactly. So what has changed since that book, 2004, that came out, right? Now it's 2016. Um, it seems like things are still wrong in Kansas and perhaps elsewhere. Everything is a little bit worse, in some places quite a bit worse. Uh, I think Kansas is, is uh, you know, the, the political scene has deteriorated quite a bit there from, from my point of view. You know, since that book came out, that was before the bubble and the collapse and the financial crisis and the Great Recession. That was before any of that stuff had happened. I mean, the housing bubble was going strong when I was writing that book. <laughs> I remember it very clearly. Things have gotten much worse since then, and we've gone through a whole cycle of uh, hope and disappointment with Barack Obama. A lot of the themes in Listen Liberal are hinted at in What's the Matter with Kansas, in particular the last chapter of What's the Matter with Kansas basically has the precis for Listen Liberal. It's all it's all there. But the events of the last eight years have really have made this book necessary. What is that precis in the last chapter of Kansas? The Democratic Party becoming a party of the professionals. Right. And this weird sort of subtext to American politics that I noticed when I was writing What's the Matter with Kansas, which is this unspoken class war uh, that people never really talk about openly, but that is always seems to be there right below the surface, which is uh, working people versus professionals. In the, Kansas, in the Kansas book, it comes up a number of times, um, you know, with like the war over the, the theory of evolution, mm -hmm. you know. Well, any number of the culture war disputes, there is a sort of hidden subtext of hostility to professionalism in these things, which I pointed out at the time. 
but um, that's an aspect of the book that I think only I noticed. It's interesting because, you know, at the same time that nobody talks about um, the working class, um, obviously we're in a moment where populism is a thing going on politically, even without using that phrase. But also in the last couple of elections, the, the term working families has sort of become like the way to refer to voters. Yeah, that's you see that more and more. There would have been different terms 20 years ago. But but look, uh this is you know politicians have always done this sort of thing giving speeches at, at the big Labor Day uh you know Labor Day parade or something like that. They they always uh talk about working people. Whether they actually do something is is a different question. Right. And also, I mean working families isn't isn't ex- quite the same thing as working people because there's the implication that families that work and therefore deserve things as opposed to those who quote unquote don't work and therefore don't don't deserve things. Oh, I always thought I, I didn't see it that way. I always thought it was a way of getting back at the family values, the phrase "family values." So, working families sort of uh, turns that on its head. We can all all work in our own different negative interpretations of these kind of terms. But I mean, the term "liberal" did the left allow the right to demonize the word "liberal"? Yes, I mean, you look back to you know the days of Jimmy Carter. Carter didn't like being called a liberal. Well, he. In point of fact, he really wasn't much of a liberal. But you remember the Michael Dukakis was the kind of ultimate case where he wouldn't even use the word, uh, and they started calling it the L word because he, you know, he refused to let it cross his lips until very late in the campaign when he was finally, you know, he was losing pretty badly and he decided he would own it, you know, and call himself a liberal. But by then it was a, yeah, it was a bad word. And I decided at that moment that that's what I would start calling myself. You know, whenever right. a word becomes a, gets abused like that, that's when I decide I need to pick up on it. Looking at the current election, everyone is sort of pointing fingers over, like, whose fault is Trump? Is Trump, in certain ways, the fault of the left? Do we have Trump because the left has done something wrong, left a vacuum? Well, I wouldn't say the left has done something wrong. I would say the Democrats. Mm-hmm. I think the Democrats deserve a big part of the blame for the Trump phenomenon. If you look at the a number one issue that he talks about it's trade. You know he's obsessed with it. Right. He talks about it all the time. The trade deals that he is describing, you know, that are that are supposedly so awful, are you know one of them is NAFTA, which was the crowning glory of the Clinton administration. And by the way, when I say crowning glory, I'm not exaggerating. This was his followers, his friends, his admirers thought this was Bill Clinton's greatest moment was NAFTA. Or the other one that he loves to talk about is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is Barack Obama's, uh, you know, sort of final uh, reach for posterity, you know, to define his presidential legacy. Uh, These are, you know, these are both prominent Democrats. Now, obviously, Republicans do trade deals, too. Republicans sort of invented the modern trade deal. And this is what makes Trump such anathema, I think, well, among other things, right? <laughs> this is what makes him so toxic to the Republican Party. It seems that what what's happened with mainstream Democratic sort of policy is that it, it's become the standard to be fiscally moderate or even fiscally conservative or then, quote unquote, you know, but liberally progressive or progressive in some way. But are those two things at odds? Well, the, the people who run the Democratic Party don't think so. That's that's really who they are. It comes very naturally to them to be very liberal to the point of shrillness on social questions and conservative like a Republican conservative on economic matters. That is really who they are, that's, and that's why I wrote the book. I was trying to understand that. And ultimately, the, uh, you know, the answer that I come up with is that the Democratic Party isn't 
who we think it is. You know, you mentioned earlier the the kind of um, the the nice rhetoric that they use when they're talking about working families or that you know at, at the Labor Day parade or whatever. But they are not the party of of working people. They used to be very closely identified with working people, with organized labor, that sort of thing. Back when I was uh, when I was young, today the group that they identify with uh, most closely, the group that they actually talk about in this, these kind of admiring terms, that group is the uh, affluent white collar professional class. Mm-hmm. That's that's who they love the most. That's that's the group that is closest to their heart. And if you look at uh, at the you know policy preferences of professionals. You know, as a cohort, as a demographic group, it's exactly what you just described: very liberal on social issues uh, and conservative on economic issues. And that's that's who runs the Democratic Party. That's that is the constituency that they listen to. That's the group that all their leaders are drawn from, with a few exceptions. So, not to totally date you, but you said when you were young, things were different, uh, and now they're not. Sort of, when did everything go wrong? Well, it started going wrong in the in the. Uh, you know, when everything else went wrong, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s, the Democratic Party essentially decided to remove organized labor from its sort of structural position within the party. It was during the Vietnam War, it was in the aftermath of the riots in 68, but then that decision came out of a new way of looking at politics where the working class was no longer you know, this is no longer what liberalism was about. It was no longer about working people. It was about these other issues and these other groups. Labor seemed kind of like reactionary to these mm-hmm. people. And so you had a whole series of democratic reform movements. All of them, this is all through the 70s and 80s, but all of these groups, you know, they disagreed on all sorts of things, but they all agreed on the idea that the Democratic Party had to leave the New Deal behind. And they had to leave the, you know, this fixation with working people. That had to be left behind. And the group that had to be in the forefront, and amazingly, all of the different Democratic reform movements uh, agreed on this, the group that had to be in the forefront was this you know, white-collar professionals. You talk um, about politicians, um, Democratic politicians as well as Republicans, as sort of using like innovation and education as as these kind of buzzwords as to how to address problems. Is there something sort of fundamentally wrong with those responses, or are they inadequate? Well, they're buzzwords. You know, yeah. uh, you know, education and innovation. These are things that everybody uh, admires. You know, nobody's nobody's against. You know, it's like creativity is another one. Who's against? Creativity right. who's against education, you know, nobody. And so, uh, what you find is that w- when you have a when you have an idea like that that is universally admired and respected, that people will try to smuggle through all kinds of bad ideas under that, you know, under that rubric. Uh, and both of the things that you mentioned, innovation and and education. I mean, innovation is the easiest one. I mean, the word is the word is everywhere now. To write this book, I went to. Um, I went to Boston. I spent a lot of time in Boston, and sort of I was looking at what a, you know, what rule by Democrats actually looks like when you're not in Washington D.C. When you're in a city in a state that's that's ruled almost completely by Democrats, and what it looks like is there's this, it's, there's a cult of I mean a state-sponsored cult of innovation. You know, they've got an innovation district. They've got, you know, innovation this, innovation that. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's almost like the Silicon Valley corporate speak has has pervaded politics. That's right. And that's how I, ironically, how I got interested in politics in the first place is I was writing about, this is back in the 90s, I was writing about management theory. I was fascinated by uh, Silicon Valley corporate speak. 
and you know what all, all these sort of empty cliches and what were they trying to do with these empty cliches you know and now uh here it is it's in our politics it's everywhere in our politics you know where you ask a democratic politician well, what are we going to do about inequality and they'll say oh Innovation, that'll solve it, <laughs> you know, or education, we all need to, everybody needs to go, you know, spend four more years at school, you know, and get that much more deeper into student loan debt or something like that. But these, so these cliches have made their way into politics, but the, the point that I'm making in Listen Liberals is that they have a cost. You know, there's a cost to uh, not looking this thing square in the face and instead believing in these myths, you know. Before you go, um, obviously it's election time. So what's your take on Hillary Clinton and what do you think liberals should be doing come November? Well, Hillary Clinton is, you know, is fascinating to me. She's a, a talented person, a highly intelligent person. I think she'll probably be elected president uh, just because it's, you know, the Democratic Party machinery. Is, I mean, they really are the dominant party at the at the presidential level these days. And so their candidate enjoys obvious advantages. She is in many ways a paradigmatic Democrat for our time. She it comes right out of the professional class. She talks about uh, professional struggles all the time. She's very proud of her career as a professional, you know, which she came up through uh, fancy colleges, uh, went to Yale Law School. Uh, she has the sort of life story of a uh, of a highly successful professional, and she really believes the ideology. When you know how Bernie Sanders criticizes her for these um, speeches that she gave uh, to investment banks, when she says, you know, they didn't bribe me, I don't do what they tell me to do because uh, because they paid me to to do it. She's absolutely correct. She does what they want her to do because she believes in it. Mm -hmm. This really is her way of looking at the world. And this is this is the point of, of Listen Liberal that that I really want your listeners to understand. You know, when I talk about the Democrats and Wall Street or when anybody talks about the Democrats and Wall Street, they aren't uh, – this isn't an exaggeration. The Democrats really have become a sort of uh, – a party of Wall Street. I, I say a, it's not the party of Wall Street because Wall Street is still slightly contested between the two political parties. Mm -hmm. But Democrats love Wall Street. Interestingly enough, they, they love it for reasons of their own, for reasons different than the Republicans love Wall Street. But, I mean, Hillary Clinton's um, admiration – for uh, investment bankers is is very deep. This is something that is that is ideologically profound for her. It's not a matter of bribery because it's an affirmation of that kind of elitist mentality that you're talking about. Well, because bankers, investment bankers, represent the sort of cream of the professional class. Mm -hmm. These are, I mean, if you look at their pedigrees, look at who they are. And by the way, before the crash, before '08. Democratic theorists used to always talk about Wall Street as a as the perfect example of what they like to call the creative class. You know, this these white collar professionals that they admire, that they want to reach out to, that they believe to be the you know the base of their party. You know, these are people that that Democrats admire. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a reason that they don't prosecute these guys. Right. <laughs> you know, these are history's um, heroes not villains. I'm still one of those people that thinks of the creative classes like poets and artists. But... <laughs> yeah, where have you been? That's right. All right, Tom, such a pleasure to talk to you. Sure thing, anytime. The book again is called Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People by Thomas Frank. For some crazy reason, tales of new motherhood often feature a woman who seems to be going off the rails. 
And in Sweet Lamb of Heaven, we've got a mother who hears a disembodied voice and with her daughter flees from a sinister husband. Lydia Millett is the author of 11 novels now, and she's been a finalist for both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer. She's here now to talk about her new book, Sweet Lamb of Heaven. Lydia, great to have you. It's such a pleasure. This uh, story centers on um, a kidnapping. Tell us how that comes about. This is a novel about a woman who's in a pretty bad marriage and who's decided to have a child without the husband's approval and who um, eventually leaves him with the child. But when he decides to become a political candidate in Alaska, she's now living in Maine with her with her little girl, he decides to hunt her down because he feels he needs a telegenic, photogenic family uh, for his campaign. And so uh, eventually this escalates into a kidnapping, and it actually even escalates further than that into a situation where he invades the privacy of of her mind. All right. (laughs) Before we get to that um, sinister development, let's talk about the um, happy couple at the center of this book. Um, Who is Anna and who is Ned? So Anna is, uh, she's, she's a I wanted to write her pretty straight. She's been a teacher in the past, a professor. She's in her 30s. She's kind of grown up in a a pretty sort of normal American family in the sense that, you know, she was maybe middle class or upper middle class, depending on how you define class. And she had a pretty sort of average life for for someone in that demographic until, until she made a series of or at least one wrong choice. And, you know, I wanted I wanted her to be pretty straight and pretty authoritative. Sometimes maybe she's a little arch in her diction, but uh, but she's a rare sort of straight narrator for me. My bailiwick is more sort of the flawed narrator. When I'm writing in the first person, it's where I'm comfortable. But because this book deals with a fairly outlandish conceit, I needed a narrator whose, whose essential reliability we wouldn't doubt too significantly. Mm-hmm. So... That's Anna, and then and then Ned is this very extraordinarily handsome man that that she married, who really is uh, is extremely cold and um, very sort of utilitarian in the way he approaches other people. He's been a businessman, and he's he's sort of all about profit, and he turns away from the marriage in pretty spectacular ways. He's a self-serving person, at least at the beginning of the book, and sort of becomes something more alarming as as the story proceeds. And he he decides to run for office. Did you think about this as as being a political novel? Well, that's a good question. I you know I admire uh, novelists like uh, Kudzea who can sort of marry the political to the personal in a way that's sort of austere and and elegant. I mean, I I wanted to write about ideas of of language and God, and, uh, and those are those are subjects that need to be treated with some delicacy and nuance. You know, God is dangerous territory, right? And uh, and but nuanced ideas can be slow to read in, in fiction. So I decided to do it in a kind of psychological or even even supernatural thriller context to try to balance a personal suspenseful story with a form of speculation that I'm I'm interested in around political power and the disingenuous use of people's genuine faith by a moneyed elite. And this speculation has actually turned out to be pretty germane in this election cycle, uh, you know, where we have both a far-right religious extremist and a billionaire who's, who's managed to sell himself as populist uh, trying to be president. 
Uh, yes, and very tricky and amazingly successful at yes, that. Yes, indeed. Um, it's funny because we had uh, Thomas Frank on the podcast earlier, and I want to read this quote from your book because it kind of echoes things that appear in his most recent book. He's the author of uh, What's the Matter with Kansas, and, uh, and he has a new book called Listen Liberal. Um, so I'm quoting here from um, one of Anna's friends um, who breaks down the political system, um, and this is the quote. Let me put it another way. There's money at the top and blue collars at the bottom. Far as I can tell, the money at the top talks about ending the separation of church and state, like Sharia, right, but Christian, end time bringers. They use this to get the blue collars to do their dirty work. Does sound like a political novel. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it can't help but be political uh, in the sense that, you know, we know, we all know there's a significant cultural schism in in this country right now between the secular and the fundamentalist or evangelical. And, and so I was interested in what a vision of a non-sectarian, non-partisan God might look like, you know, one, one that's not at war with the natural world and, and not at war with science, um, because it's, it's clearly a false opposition, Christianity versus, versus science, you know, one that's based in a pretty distressed misunderstanding. You know, there's no reason a scientist has to be an atheist. There's no reason a religious person has to reject science. And so there's this trumped-up binary that that feeds into a culture war that we we really need to stop fighting very soon if we're if we're going to tackle for example the crisis of climate change and and the crisis of mass extinction it is political by necessity you mentioned earlier that most of your novels tend to have unreliable narrators and this one is was different in that way when you're approaching a new book do you sort of think of it as part of this ongoing kind of project of, of all of your collected work, or do you try to do something different in each book? I do like to do something new just to um, to stay interested in what I'm doing, but I think there's a certain amount of continuity. I've, I've had several books now where, in some form or another, I approach ideas about extinction, for example. Um, I'm fairly fixated on uh, on the loss of species and, and what that matters to human culture. and So there's some continuity, but I, I never want to write the same book twice. And I, as I think I mentioned to you um, previously, it makes me fairly hard to brand. As a writer, it's kind of a nightmare for a publisher. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I do always want to do something that I find compelling, and I, I like not to know exactly where I'm going with a book when I start it. You know, that was exactly what I was going to ask you. Did you know where this was going? Because there's kind of a thriller-like tension to the book. Right, and so there's a certain amount of, of plotting that has to occur, but it's not the kind of intricate plotting that you might see in, you know, something like Gone Girl or Tana French or something where um, everything has to be calculated uh, beforehand. It's, it's sort of, I think it proceeds more organically, even though it's in this sort of... Um, formal construct of a thriller. I knew I knew certain things about where I was going. I normally just have sort of um, an idea of emotional texture or a certain kind of idea that I want to get to by the time I reach the last page of a novel. But I don't have, for example, a little outline <laughs> worked out beforehand or anything. I used to do that when I was in my 20s. I tried to write that way, and, and it is for many people, I think a very effective way to work. But for me, I found it just wasn't as exciting if I was trying to work from a sort of pre-organized template. Well, I think probably uh, for the sake of our readers, I'll end it there so that we don't get rid of that excitement and we don't give away too much of the ending. Um, <laughs> thank you. No spoilers. No spoilers here. Lydia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. The book again is called Sweet Lamb of Heaven by Lydia Millett, and it's reviewed this week in the book review by Laura Lippman. 
So here's a new thing we're trying. We'll be talking not only about the bestsellers, but also about our editor's choices, the books that we here at the Book Review thought were especially good, even if our reviewers didn't. Joining me now are my colleagues from the Book Review, Greg Coles and Pearl Sagel. Hey, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. So uh, let's talk about what other people are reading first. Um, occasionally, it overlaps with what we're reading, but what's big on the bestseller list this week? Uh, the most notable newcomers on the fiction hardcover list this week are probably uh, down at number 16, Carl of Knausgaard continues his uh, six-volume autobiographical novel, My Struggle. The fifth book in that series, My Struggle, book five, is new on the list at number 16. And that that has really become just kind of a phenomenon. Each of the last two books has hit the list. Um, book three hit the extended list. Book four hit the actual uh, print hardcover list. And now book five has joined it. I actually think, like, even though many of the new titles on the bestseller often have, like, 27 previous volumes in the series, <laughs> yeah, yeah. even though this one only has four, it's probably a lot harder work in many ways, although perhaps more um, yeah, rewarding. The, the four previous books equal almost 2,000 pages, yeah. so, so it, it could easily have been 27 earlier volumes. Has either of you made it all the way through? I'm in the middle of book five. Wow. I know. I'm gonna, but I'm five addicted. points for know, Carl Sagal here. No, no, no. I, I, was, I wanted to be skeptical and cool, but I just fell very hard for these books. I, I've read the first four. I have not started book five, except uh, to the extent that I needed to here at work. Um, so, you know, I, I know what it's about, but I haven't kind of settled in with it as pleasure reading just yet. All right. The next one on the list is probably a lot faster and easier going. Yeah, uh, there's a few other new titles on the list, but the other one uh, that really seems of note is up at number five, Curtis Sittenfeld's uh, novel Eligible, which is her modern day riff on Pride and Prejudice. She she takes the Pride and Prejudice story. It's part of an ongoing project um, that uh, the Jane Austen Society or a Jane Austen appreciation group has, has done. They've um, approached various authors and asked them to uh, write new versions of the Jane Austen novels. Um, Which series do you think is doing better, that or the new versions of the Shakespeare plays coming out from hmm. Hogarth? You say doing better, you mean just in terms of sales? Yeah. I think this is the first book on either of those um, projects to, to hit, hit the, the list, list at yeah. all. None of the Shakespeare yeah. books have, and none of the previous Austin books did. They were all written by British writers. Alexander right. McCall Smith right. was one. Uh, Sense and Sensibility, I think, was one of the updates. Um but Pride and Prejudice is kind of the big Jane Austen right. book. And Curtis yeah. Sittenfeld is, uh, as some of the other writers have been, um, is a, a known quantity. She's been a bestseller uh, with, I think, each of her previous books. Something tells me that Joe Nesbo with his Macbeth might, might also <laughs> land on the list. Yeah. So this one, um, she sets it in Cincinnati. It's uh, set in the present time. And the title Eligible uh, refers to a Bachelor-type reality show called Eligible. And that's also one of our editor's choices this week. It is, as is the Knausgaard. All right. Pearl, what are you reading or what's good? You know, I was... In the middle of sort of uh, editing two reviews that are both uh, on editor's choice, two books. Um, one of them is Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are by Franz DeWall. The other one is The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. John Wellam reviews them both in this week's issue. And while I was fact-checking, this thing started happening where I realized that, oh, I'm not fact-checking. I'm reading, you know. <laughs> so I actually ended up taking both of these books home. And, again, everybody who knows me knows that I have a notoriously soft spot for all things, you know, small and fuzzy, fuzzy and cute. And, but um, these are really, um, I mean, first of all, the review is fantastic, but these books are also 
just so interesting, so well done. And both these writers write about animals and animal intelligence without sentimentalizing them, which is mm-hmm. so hard to do. Oh, my God. Can I just say that I saw on Twitter this morning a photo. It's some photographer has this project where she's trying to sort of revamp the perception, the negative perception of pit bulls. Yeah. And so there I were photos. Did you see yeah, that? I saw that There tweet. were photos of pit bulls with these floral wreaths Miserable. on their head. Miserable. And all I could think about was this yeah. Franz de Waal book and yeah. thinking, like, these dogs are too smart for this kind right. of treatment. Yeah, and it, but the book essentially makes the case is that we, we just, we've been trying to measure animal intelligence with with human parameters, for example. So we say that, you know, chimpanzees aren't good at facial recognition because we've been trying to make them recognize human faces. So it's this whole um, upending of how we look at animals, how we look at intelligence, and they're just both full of, like, wild facts. For example, my last one, my last <laughs> one, is, um, I think it's, is it crows? Can not only tell the difference between Impressionist and Cubist paintings, but they can tell the difference between a Brock and a Picasso. But like which do they like yep. more? <laughs> <laughs> See, taste does not come into it. But, but yeah, so it's just full of like just wild, just great facts and um, beautifully written. And the review I would also really love to plug because I think it's a beautiful piece of writing. Greg, speaking of beautiful writing and very funny writing, you just <laughs> finished. Did you finish it on the train? I did. I finished on the train this morning. Um, I've been... I, I always have several books kind of going on the side for pleasure reading outside of work. And uh, right now those books are, um, I'm reading a story collection by a Canadian author who died a few years ago. His name is Alistair MacLeod. He's from Nova Scotia. And these are um, kind of gritty, plain-spoken stories, many of them about the sea, um, seafaring or miners. But my train reading until this morning, uh, when I finished it, has been um, a 1980 memoir by Clive James. It's the first of uh, his several memoirs. It's called Unreliable Memoirs. One of the great memoir titles ever. Uh, (laughs) um, It is a fantastic book. It is... Uh, he wrote it. He was 39 when he wrote it. He was 40 by the time it was published. And it's your typical kind of young man's look back at his coming of age and um, and, and at his lost homeland. It, it shares something with Nabokov's speak memory in that regard. Um, he grew up in Sydney, Australia, but moved um, in his early 20s to London. I love when he writes about um, in Australia that like everything, basically the second you step off the road, like everything wants to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is wild. He writes um, great about spiders, about snakes. Uh, It's all very terrifying and very, he's such a nimble and funny writer. Um, There's an aspect of reading the the childhood stuff in in Sydney and the suburbs. Um, It's like the little rascals. He's running around barefoot all the time and he gets locked in the outhouse or, or the outhouse door opens while he's in there and the girl he has a crush on is right across the street and sees him. Um, there, there's this kind of high comedy uh, or low comedy to what he's doing um, in a really appealing way. Well, read us a little bit. Sure. This is um, from the end of the book when he's already on the boat to London. It's an intellectual coming of age. It's also a sexual coming of age. And um, he, he he's kind of always checking out the girls around him. And uh, he is grumpy on this boat ride. The, the, this very short chapter on the boat to London rivals David Foster Wallace's much longer essay, um, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, about uh, being uh, on a cruise ship. Clive James was not on a cruise ship. He was just on kind of a freighter, a passenger freighter to London. But w- one of the great lines in it at the beginning is... Um, Even a luxury liner is really just a bad place surrounded by water. It is a means of inducing hatred for your fellow men by trapping you in a confined space with too few of them to provide variety and too many to allow solitude. He says there are eligible women aboard, and they're all claimed before they've even left the harbor by the ship's crewmen. (laughs) Um, There were a couple of 
lines that really made me laugh. Uh, so both of these sentences talk about his kind of envy uh, um, and, and resentment of uh, the fact that all of those ladies ended up with the crew members. The first is, the Greek entertainments officer entertained us by organizing Greek dancing displays in which the prettier girl passengers showed us the skills they had learned from the crew during the day. The skills they had learned from the crew during the night, we were left to imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and then along the same lines uh, on the next page, he says... Uh, the ship ground to a halt and waited for morning. It shook gently on the vibration of the girl passengers saying farewell to the crew. <laughs> All right. <laughs> He's very good with a punchline. He'll yes. end, end a sentence on an unexpected way. Juicy bits, <laughs> courtesy of Clive James and yeah, Greg Cold. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. 